Hey guys, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, and this is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hey guys, it's me. Uh, really starting to step up on my podcast and give you some uh, context and pretext to uh, some of these talks. This is a talk I gave the other day to uh, an incubator around logistics, a bunch of startup founders in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, Ted and his team there at Dynamo and and, and Lightpost are real great partners, friends, uh, just people I enjoy down in Chattanooga and they've got this incubator around logistics companies and I, I just kind of gave in and, and shot my shit and uh, the energy of the room and, and the moment in time I think created a really good piece of content and so I know you're running on the treadmill right now or walking the dog or driving into work uh, so I know that you're passively uh, consuming this at times so for everybody who kind of passively consumes pay triple attention this one's deep, this, got, this has some shit. Do you agree, right? Totally. This has some shit. Listen to some shit. Enjoy this episode. I'm always trying to get that competitive edge of understanding what my people care about so that I can put them in a position to succeed, give them slightly more value to them than I'm asking for in return, which allows for me to have continuity because people actually want to work for me for the long term. And I think continuity is extremely important. And obviously I apologize. I'm already talking about my companies at scale. So let me give you a real quick piece of advice of what I did both with Wine Library and VaynerMedia. Your first 20 employees are everything. And I mean everything. And the advice I just gave you, it is conce- it's inconceivable for me as you build out your businesses or if you're at this level right now, for you not to be obsessed with what the top 10, 15, first 10, 15, 20 employees of your company care about. You should know everything about them. You should know their parents' name, their origin story, like where they want to go, are they with you for three to four years so they can build their own? Support it. Support it. Figure them out cold. They will be the foundation of the DNA of your organization forever. It's imperative because when you scale from 20 to 80, they are you. And what they do means everything. That's why we've been able to be successful because I lose money up front to disproportionately nail down culture and religion and then I'm able to scale very quickly and both of my companies had hyper top line growth because I was able to have that continuity and that buy-in of what we were actually doing. And I was able to fire the people that I think a lot of people retain at first because they're drivers of business but they're actually killing you in the long term. They might be your best salesperson but the way they're good at sales is by killing everybody else around them and defeating everybody and so they're building the best, biggest building on the team because they're tearing down everybody else's building and in the first 20 you need people that build the biggest building by just building the biggest building. Important stuff that very, but don't be crippled by those hires either. Another big mistake a lot of people make early on is they overthink the hiring process because they think they need these perfect pieces and nobody hires perfectly. It's so hard. The key is firing, not hiring. The key is once you've tasted it to know, oh crap, I ordered vanilla but I needed chocolate, right? It's not about, you know, everybody has too much ego that they're such a great, and they got a great concept, or especially if they're analytical, all my startup clients, they love to math it out and all these fucking tests. It's all horseshit. Reality is once the game's, once you're on the field, it's like the combine, right? It was like the NFL combine, it freaks me out. They're making draft picks on all this data that doesn't translate to what's actually happening on the fucking field. 
And so that happens a lot in startup culture. You have math-based entrepreneurs that love quant and are doing a lot of data and they hire based on this test and it's gonna be fucking foolproof. It's never foolproof. And by the way, I think I'm the EQ Hall of Fame and I've got great intuition and I hire people all the time that I think are gonna change my business and, and then like they change my business by giving me a fucking headache for six months. You know, so like it's a very tough game. So I think the practical approach is not to cripple yourself with the hiring. It's you do the best you can, go with intuition, really over deliver in that hiring process what you give a fuck about so that they can never say I didn't know and then, and then audit when it's in the system. Okay, very cool. Uh, let's switch it up a little bit and talk about you as an investor and a venture capitalist. Okay. So what do you look for when you are meeting with founders and startups what stands out the most that we can tell our Dynamo teams and, and others to make an impression? Uh, everybody's different, so I think you need to know your audience. So if you're going to see Fred Wilson or, or you know, going to Silicon Valley, like, they're going to give a crap about math because they're mathematicians. I have now gone extreme. I used to, so I used to bet on my belief in the product and the person running it, and that's where I made all my money. Then I became a VC and I became stupid and started caring about way too many things that didn't matter. Now, in this new iteration, I'm in the weirdest place I've ever been, which I've now decided I actually don't give a fuck about the business at all, and I'm only betting on people. Like straight up, just out of like, if I'm gonna make 10 bets, it is so clear to me that if I fundamentally just bet on the guy or the gal, and like really like how I used to do it, I will win. And so, if you're pitching me, you need to sell me on you and like, not a lot of people try to pitch themselves on me and they know I care about hard work and like, they'll go be like, Gary, I sold pencils in sixth grade and I work 24 hours a day and they think that's enough to get me going. Yeah, those are things I like, but that's not necessarily, that's one little part of the whole equation. But for me, I'm only about the jockey now. I used to say jockey and horse. Um, when I was a good investor, it was jockey, a little bit of horse. Then when I was like, when I had a poor run of investing, when I was really in it, I was caring way too much about the horse and not paying enough time to the jockey. Now I'm like, fucking show me the founder. She's rad as fuck, she'll figure it out. Like, she'll pivot the business from you know, enterprise SaaS to like selling t-shirts, I don't give a fuck. That's what I'm seeing and I think why I'm doing that more than ever is I think shit's gonna hit the fan sooner than later. I haven't really calibrated the Trump effect, right? Like it would naturally have happened I just think that he's gonna do everything he can to not let the economy fall on his watch. So I'm trying to figure out what that actually means. But we are living through the great era of fake entrepreneurship. Everybody thinks they're an entrepreneur. And so I'm, I'm barely investing. Like really, really. Just because I think supply and demand of ideas and practicality. I think the idea that your idea is worth $4 million before anything is scary to me and it's played itself out. I'm just not there anymore. So I'm a little bit uninspired by our space. I'm part of it, I'm in it. Um, But I'm looking for people that I believe are actually building businesses, not financial arbitrage machines that are built to satisfy investors in series A quant-based metrics. I would tell you that the majority of people you're gonna pitch care about that. They're gonna care for you to hit metrics because they're bankers, because they're CFOs. Like, go look at a VC. Like, like, go look at their backgrounds. They fit the mold, and by the way, that's fine, and you should know that. If you, like, if you want to reverse engineer that, and you think you're good enough to then completely change the DNA of your organization after you get the money to actually then build a business, well, I believe that's a thesis, but I think that's hard. 
And I think what I've seen is that everybody's just building you know, financial arbitrage machines, not actual businesses. And I think one of the things that attracted me so much to this and to him and to like, you know, what I'm hopeful that a lot of you were up to is things that are a little bit more business oriented. And like, listen, our, our conversations have evolved over the last three years. Again, it's why I have a kinship with this group. It, like, it's getting hard to get excited about investing because we want to build actual businesses. It's what we come from. You know, like, there was no metrics or fundraising when I was building my dad's business or when I was doing baseball cards. It was like, you gotta make money. So I like that. And I actually give things like Chattanooga, Tennessee and other places huge advantage over what's going on in Silicon Valley. That is just a quant-based arbed world. And that's why Zynga and Birchbox, they, they all get hurt eventually because they're not building something and they're just caught in the mousetrap, the hamster wheel of making quant work for quant. Make, and the problem is, if you look at what happened in 2007, 2001, like when there's no money to subsidize the quant, well then you actually have to have a business and you're finished and things like Yik Yak selling for a million dollars are previews to that. So like I don't want to weird you out but you're gonna love this. So. I think it's kind of like propaganda. You tell me the 187 decision makers of your software and I will show you some shit that will really excite you which is, for example, Mr. Robot, the TV show, we did the marketing for that company. We actually ran ads against the family members of the voters of the Golden Globes for Mr. Robot. Like straight up in B2B, it switches from marketing to propaganda for me. So for example, if you know the decision maker has the title of. If you guys know that the people that would buy your software are CIOs, I would make a minute 47 second video that said, does, starts with, does your CIO know? You go into the value prop in an entertaining piece of content, not the normal B2B fucking bullshit 30 second video. And then you run ads against employees of the organizations you're trying to sell to the conversions are ludicrous because 24 employees forward it to the CIO. That's just real life. That's just super real life. So I actually think you have it easier. You know, I've run a business now at scale both in consumer and B2B. I like B2B way better. You know who the people are. You reverse engineer them. Nobody's doing anything creative. It's all fucking trade shows, cold calls, email blasts, LinkedIn spam, and fucking print ads in B2B magazines. There's a huge opportunity. Uh, I would run ads on Facebook to do a VIP wine dinner with, I would spend the $50,000 to get a celebrity to that industry, have her host a wine dinner, mixer, run Facebook ads against the employees and decision makers of the 50 people, RSVP, first 30 people, get it, get them there, have them in a closed room, and close business. Uh, I'm Mark, I run Mark. a company that's basically Skynet for logistics, and I'm curious of finding out your thoughts on targeting you know, Twitter versus LinkedIn versus Facebook. Face, Facebook. Really? Yeah, Facebook is dominant. Facebook's data's cleaner, and their ad product's better, and people actually see it. I do think LinkedIn is now showing the early stages of finally getting it together, like if LinkedIn's ad product were exactly like Facebook, you'd spend all your money on LinkedIn because it's a B2B environment. Um, but right now I think Facebook works. What happens is the employee of segmentation is extremely powerful, right? Or just like literally, um, literally creating 
cont- so uh, here's what I would do if I became your partner, Mark. I would say, look, we're a media company, Mark, and then we are whatever we are, right? So the weekly podcast, the white papers, the interviews of people, like I think every company in here, as mainly a B2B technology company, every one of you should start a monthly podcast on the narrowest of narrow niches in your world, because the truth is, you don't need as many people as I do for listening, you just need the 1,500 people in your industry to listen. Nobody's doing a fucking podcast, and then you know what's even crazier? If you become the podcast, and your guests are the senior executives of the companies you're trying to do business with, they're so happy to be fake famous, they just give you the fucking business. You love it, right, Ted? That's just so fucking smart. Like, it's so, like, this is so smart. Like, you start the podcast, and the first person is the CMO or CEO or CTO or CIO or CFO of the fucking company you want the business for. Hey, Rick, we're so, you're so amazing. Can you be our guest? Sure. They you know who the fuck ever asked Rick, the CFO of fucking container company, for anything. Now Rick gets to send his buddies at fucking Duke, like, I was on a podcast, and nonetheless, you won. Got it? So I would act like a media company. Start that podcast, who gives a fuck if only 800 people listen. I promise you, if you have a podcast based on what I just heard, you, you know, there's only 800 people that could listen to it and if you get 280 of them, you won. And I call it the high school party concept. Like somewhere along the way, somebody who's not that popular in high school realizes, fuck, if I throw the party because my parents are away and the cool kids come and trash my house, I by proxy am kind of cool. And that's actually how I think about becoming the media company in your industry. By just becoming the podcast and getting two people to be on your show, which completely plays to their ego, so they'll say yes, you're basically in the mix. Be the media company. So when I was in grad school and I took a project management course, I was still naive at the time, um, one of the big things that they talk about is positive reinforcement. And they basically say that negative reinforcement is a non-starter. You shouldn't. And at the time, I, for me, that seemed ludicrous. Right. It's like, why would you only give positive feedback and not give negative feedback? How would you improve your workforce? Correct. And that was always my kind of, yeah, like I want to be straight to the point if you're fucking up, you're fucked up. Yep. You're trying to fix it. And always been very short on praise because I believe if you short on praise, sure. it actually means something. But once I started, Living in real life. Yeah, once I started re- living in real life and I ran a soccer team and I was leading a small team here and there, I realized that shit doesn't work. Because most people are average and average people don't respond to this sort of behavior. And My company's thesis is the honey empire. Honey, empire. Honey over vinegar, but empire. Which is I will honey you forever, but then I'll kill you if you don't rise up to re, so my thesis is similar, it's the love child of my thesis and your thesis, which is I do believe believe honey over vinegar to a point, and then if you don't respond to the honey, meritocracy has to exist because when you get to scale, you'll lose the best players if you're not treating meritocracy with some level of respect. So I think up front, Mickey will tell you this, like every player, advanced because I wanted to establish that culture, but we've in the last two years deployed dramatically more empire where meritocracy matters. So I think both are right. I think it's the cadence in, when you, in which and how you deploy it. It's parenting. Yeah. Like 
the first five years of your kid, if you like punch your kid in the face the first time they pee their pants when they're 11 months old, that's a bad strategy, right? <laughs> and I think a lot of people try to do that with companies and employees, and you're right. Like, whenever you're scratching your, too many managers, especially if they're engineer or mathematically based, are reverse engineering themselves and deploying the way they would react to the masses. And they lack the self-awareness or they're tone deaf to the reality of human behavior. So that's right. So I've never had balance by politically correct points of view. You know, my entire 20s I had no life other than building the business, but that made me so happy. And uh, that's what I wanted. I think once I got married and started a family, you know, to be very frank, I was pretty aware of what I was looking for and who I was, and so I was extremely over-communicative with my wife about who I was. I just remember on our second date explaining to her that she was gonna believe that when we started a family and when I got older that I would balance out and I was explaining to her that it would be the other way because as I get older, I'm running out of time and buying the New York Jets and that would make me go crazier, not easier. And that's what's happened. I work harder today than I've ever worked in my entire life. Um, It comes down to you and the people you love the most. And I think um, it's a very difficult thing. I never give advice on work-life balance to people because it's a very personal thing. It also evolves, right? Like I now take seven weeks vacation. I used to take two because I do want to spend more time with my family, but I can't do it day in and day out. So I have to do it in extremism of going hardcore here, hardcore there, right? Um, But I also reacted as as America became a little more European in August and the last two weeks became a complete checkout, I took advantage of them, like, oh, cool. For me, the biggest stress in the world is if I'm on vacation and nobody else is. So like, I love like Christmas break, I love those last two weeks of August. Like, all these holidays I love, great. Uh, like, listen, if, if America tomorrow said all of July and August are off, I'd be pumped as long as everybody else was off, right? So I think it's a very hard thing to answer. I think it's personal, but here's what I would say. And this is the big one, especially for a young dude like you. Whatever is considered politically correct or right today will not in the future. And I think that's where people get caught. Like for example, I am deeply fascinated by co-parenting and its ineffectiveness similar to no such thing as co-CEOs. Like one of the fascinating things as the, as like you know, you go back to a, a classic family 30, 40 years ago, it was divide and conquer, right? Somebody was working, somebody was raising the household. As we are now mixed, it's been really fascinating what the modern parenting blueprint means to children and how it's playing out. I don't know if I'll get to see, like I'll probably be quite old once it gets deeply, but I know it's not as good as people think. Because it's very similar to businesses. When you've got two things, like it's, it's very, like clear direction has value. Back to your like, you know, like there is value in that. And I'm, I'm really curious to see how it plays out. But I think, I think a lot of people are very half pregnant right now. They're trying to put one foot in every box and then yet, you know, it, it's classic, right? When you like, when you're trying to do two things, you're doing no things. So I don't know, but I would tell you that's for sure. That's been historically true. Whatever is acceptable today, like, you know, somebody's gonna write some bullshit book in nine years saying workaholics are right and everybody's gonna be back to like, no, 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 you need to work a lot. Like, like, 
you have to know yourself and what drives you. And I, uh, I'm a big believer in that. You've gotta be insular, not what the current public perception is on things. Everybody gets burned on that. So you've been ahead of the curve on technology for you know, pretty much your whole life and, and your media mindset. What do you think about Alexa? I'm obsessed. And I think that voice saves time and time is the ultimate arbitrage and that most of the things I spend my time on right now, it brainstorming in my head, are trying to figure out how to be part of the morning routine that I'm convinced is gonna be AI and voiced out, that everybody's gonna work, wake up and say, Alexa or Google Home or something else, give me my morning routine. I believe every one of us are gonna listen to information for the first seven to 11 minutes of our morning while we brush our teeth, and I'm dying to figure out how to be one of the voices of that. Me, as Gary, as like your daily business motivation, and then me as a client, so this is not a joke, you're gonna love this, and I love you for asking this, because I'm so hot committed. I'm actually trying to buy an umbrella company or invest in one. This is so weird, look about how I'm thinking about this. I want to buy or start an umbrella company just so I can build an Alexa skill and a Google Home skill to be the brand that provides you the weather every morning. Like I wanna build the best weather app for the voice world. It's like owning the first result on Google search for weather. Why do you need the umbrella? That's just how I decided I wanted to deploy it. You don't, that's my personal like, oh wouldn't it be fun to build like a $400 million umbrella business on the back of our big Alexa because like your, your weather is brought to you by like umby umbrellas and like people will hear that 400 trillion times a day. Like it's so fat, I'm, I'm a big believer. I believe in it the most. It is going to be monstrous. I think you should widen it. I don't know anything about you, but if you, like, I would say, if it's an Alexa-based branded thing, I would just widen it if you have no reason to do it other than that was the first thing, because Google Home's gonna be real. You're gonna see other things get real, and so I think just owning that AI voice thing gives you. Could be two different events. I know, but Could. There's a, there's a number of people who just focus specifically I'm aware, I'm aware. I think it plays out like mobile, right? Like you would have been right to do the iPhone thing, but over time Android became important. Like it just depends on how you're thinking about it in a seven year window, like just from a branding standpoint. But they're both like, um, I mean, there's not a single entrepreneur that I think is better than Jeff Bezos. Not a single one. He's the best. Be- I yeah. I yeah, please. Uh, I'm also a big fan of Alexa, but 99.9% of the skill is garbage. Of course. Did you see the first websites or the first iPhone apps? Sure, and then the big question is how, how, will, how do you think Amazon will monetize Alexa because the only way to make skills quality is to bring money to it? No, I mean, it, it, it's such a big bet. See, like, that's why Bezos is the best. He doesn't give a fuck about how they monetize it over the next 24, 36, 48, 60 months. All he wants to do is fully penetrate your attention. Right, but one of the things that they won't do, for example, is they won't run ads, right? They're much more intrusive than as I can call. So, how will they, even, even if they don't plan to monetize it in the next four years, he's not doing it for the goodness of his heart. No, he's not. 20, 20, 20 years. Sure, so let's play it out. Alexa gives you the weather, and then you say, Alexa, order me a raincoat. I have a funny feeling Amazon will figure that out. Right? Yeah, but how many people are going to order a raincoat without seeing what they're Gary, nobody's gonna buy tomatoes on the internet until they do. Time trumps everything. 
If fucking Amazon sends you six different raincoats and you get to pick the one you like and you send back five, you will buy. I really believe that. And I think that what he plays on is that, is that time arbitrage, you know, and it's convenience. We will always, like, Uber, I fucking lost a lot of money by not understanding Uber was selling time. Let me rephrase, Uber's selling the perception of time, right? But I think, you know, I, and look, Alexa's already evolved even quicker than I even thought, right? It's already, I mean, how many people are gonna put a camera in their bedroom, right? But they are, because like, we're just very comfortable. Like, what Bezos has done is made the historical bet that he's gonna be right. You know what Bezos is? Bezos is, in a lot of ways, very similar to Warren Buffett. The reason Warren Buffett has won just very basically, and I'm not a financier, but it was very basic. He basically made the following bet. As long as America itself doesn't go out of business, I win. And that's what his thesis is. And that's how he invests. That's basically what Bezos is doing around technology. As long as we don't completely have the humans versus the robots battle, we will continue to integrate technology into our lives far more aggressive than people realize. And I think that's what happens there. That's my intuition. And you know what's funny about people is people know. So I gave you my example. Probably a smarter example is Alexa, order me a Burberry raincoat. Like people know brands, right? Like when you're listening to your morning routine and you're brushing your teeth, if you say Alexa, reorder me toothpaste, it will. Now what gets interesting is as technology grows, I think it's fascinating because Amazon's still a retailer, which is why he's going so heavy into private label because where I get excited is when your toothpaste reorders itself for you because it understands it has nothing left in the tube. Like that shit's fucking awesome. Like when your Budweiser six pack is reordering itself because it knows you drink one a night and you're down to one, and like that just, when you start understanding the smartification of everything in society, you start getting into some really interesting trends. So Luke asked, okay, you said you're a moldable dictator. What's the difference between a moldable dictator and an asshole? I'm a huge fan of calling people's bluffs. I think an asshole is blindly bought into her or his shit and is just stuck there. I really believe it, like you have to understand, it's more fun to me to say I totally disagree with you, but you can do it. And then playing, and then seeing what happens. Right? Coach, when people tell you I can guard this guy, like, and you know they can't, sometimes it's fun to just call their bluff, and right, like, like, yep. Yeah, so to me, I think I'm right, that that's the dictator part, but the moldable part is, it's ROI positive to call your bluff, and I play big stakes. Mickey will tell you, we've lost big pieces of business, we've had big blows, because I can handle a lot. Like, I call people shit at macro. I'm not talking about something little, I'm talking about like, risky shit, because I think I can, I can hedge it. Um, but I think listening for sure, definitely letting people do things. And then admitting when you're wrong. I killed project management in my company because I thought it was a layer we didn't need and then I brought it back nine months and it was super fun to say in front of the company I was wrong. I told you if I was wrong I'd bring it. Like, and that makes them feel great, right? Like when you're the guy or the gal but you say I'm wrong, that's empowering. And as long as you're just right a whole lot, which I am, it makes them confident that they're behind the right leader. Listen, if you're a moldable dictator and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong, you're gonna lose people's you know, confidence. So for me, as long as I'm right 32 out of 35 times, that's gonna play itself out. And as long as everybody feels like we could have debated those 35, the, the dictator part comes in the following loop. I'll listen, I'll let people do shit, but when I make a decision 
and like, and like fully feel like everything's been tasted, then you've gotta completely buy in blindly or then you're out. If we've already tested it, like if you failed on your thing, I went a different way and it's the law of the land, but you're still crying about the reason you failed was I couldn't cover the guy because I twisted my ankle the third time down the feet. Fuck you, that's excuses. Like don't twist your ankle. Oh. <laughs> I, so you have, it seems like you have a lot going on. How do you know where you should be spending your time? Like when you wake up, do you have a plan? Or do you kind of... I, I have a full-time assistant. Every minute of my life is programmed. Mm-hmm. But I don't do, a, I don't, I don't think anybody does a great job of opportunity costs. I think the more successful you become, you become crippled by opportunity. And I just don't, this is a really fun one, and I hope this brings some people value because I think it's quite unique. I just don't judge myself. Once I make a call, I can't think of like, why did, the profit, the TV show, I passed on it. I passed on every business TV show until I just did one with Apple, right? Like they wanted me first. I said no. Like, they became a hit. It could have been really good, but like, like what? I don't know, maybe I would, like, like, I just don't judge myself. I don't sit here and say, should have I come to Tennessee today? Because I've got this big opportunity in North, like, like, you make a decision and you go with it. Like, everybody thinks about all these things, rethinking every little thing, like, you don't know how life, like, pe- people always judge, it's about judging yourself. Like, how do I know? I have no idea. You're making 400,000 decisions a week. Left, right, down, it's like the Plinko thing, right? Like, bloop, 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 like, like there's a million ways it could come out. And then I just, I think it's a binary optimistic or pessimistic point of view. I see a lot of entrepreneurs or friends like, oh, I wish I did. I'm like, dude, you, Uber, I brought up once before, I passed on it twice in the angel round. Travis was one of my best friends and only friends in tech in 2007, 8, 9. Like, it's right there for me, it's in my face. My normal $50,000 investment would have $600 million in cash, in my pocket even, because I, I could liquidate it at any point, probably up until this last couple months where things have clearly got weird for that company. I never think about it, here's why. Had I invested in Uber, Maybe I would have been brought out to some Silicon Valley conference of like why I was so smart, right? And maybe when I was crossing the street, I would have been hit by a car. Like everybody just has all these, like they think of it so basic. Oh, if I would have done this. Like there's just so many things that life is way too much of a matrix. So I think the answer to your question is I make decisions and I don't even for a second dwell or look backwards and thus it allows me to make a lot of decisions. It allows me to move fast and I think the net score is quite positive and I think people slow themselves down. So how or what, I don't know, I make decisions, right? Like I do the best I can at that moment. I try to have an overarching view. Most of the times I don't. It's funny, you had a cool screensaver looking down at the airport, right? I wish I was always doing that. But I'm not, sometimes I'm in the fucking hallway of that airport, right? Like sometimes you're looking like this, sometimes you're looking like this. That's why I think people need to know themselves. Like what helps you look like this? Is that vacation time? I actually look better at a macro when I'm in it. When I'm in vacation time, I can't concentrate. Like it's funny, like you just gotta know your, so like I would say back to the theme a little bit of this talk, just know yourself, be unapologetic about who you are and I would actually tell you tripling down on what naturally comes to you if you're binary and this and that, like you need to be aware, it's maybe the third partner who's the head of HR who manages people. See, that's what I do when somebody asks me, like, like you don't need to do everything. And trying to round out your HR skills or all these people, like entrepreneurs, are like I'm gonna learn to code, I'm like, why? Like there's unlimited fucking people that know how to code. Everybody's being taught how to code. You suck at that kind of shit. You can't concentrate for shit, you're an artist. The fuck are you trying to figure out how to code? 
right? Like, I just think we're always trying, like this country and this world is very good at selling us on fixing our shortcomings and it's completely the opposite thing. It's getting super deep and narrow and surrounding yourselves, whether through partnerships or employees or mentors with your shortcomings. That's how I say it. I really feel like I'm in tune to why I'm successful and it's because I've been fighting the narrative. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Have a good luck. Hey, guys, I hope you really enjoyed this episode of the Gary Vee Experience. Now go out and share this, pass it on, let me know what you thought.